Leon Logothetis was on a track to go into the family business from his youngest days, and as expected, that's exactly what he did, filling his days uh, brokering deals in the shipping industry. And from the outside in, you know, he kind of had everything. He had a great job, making great money, good position, a clear direction in life. But from the inside looking out, he was dying a little bit more every day, fiercely lonely and falling apart inside. So he made a very radical decision to walk away from the family business, away from the legacy that had been laid out before him to carve his own path. Where did that lead him? Well, first, to land on the East Coast of the United States and decide that he was going to find his way across the entire country without cash, sustaining himself only on the kindness of others. This journey actually became a film and then led to a round-the-world kindness adventure on a motorcycle with a sidecar that he calls Kindness One, and which, of course, was painted a bright, shiny yellow. But this time, the stakes were also raised. Not only could he only live on the kindness of others, he also committed to giving back along the way. Some of the stories that unfolded there were just really astonishing. That journey became the basis of a book, and then the Kindness Diaries series, which can now be seen on Netflix, and Leon also has a new book called Go Be Kind. It's kind of more of a, actually a, a daily journal of fun and easy ways to be kind, simple ways to integrate kindness into your everyday life. So excited to share this conversation with you today. I'm Jonathan Fields, and this is Good Life Project. show is sponsored by meditation app 10% Happier. So the app, it comes with courses that they teach you how to stress better, deal with difficult emotions, and build healthier habits. I love that the material is entertaining and relatable. The host, New York Times bestselling author Dan Harris, he's funny, he's real, he's vulnerable, and he's teamed up with some of the world's best meditation teachers to show you how meditation helps kind of smooth out some of life's wrinkles using cutting edge science and hard won experience to demonstrate the tangible benefits that meditation can have. And listeners of Good Life Project get 40% off. Just go to 10percent.com slash goodlife. That's 10% all spelled out, T-E-N-P-E-R-C-E-N-T dot com slash goodlife. And if you aren't ready to meditate just yet, but are curious how smart, ambitious people use meditation and benefit from it, well then check out the 10% Happier podcast. Either way, you can find it all at 10percent.com slash goodlife. Good Life Project is supported by HubSpot. Complex enterprise software, it shouldn't get in the way of launching your next campaign. That is why HubSpot built the new marketing hub enterprise. So say goodbye to countless hours of software management. Their platform offers the power and flexibility that scaling companies need to succeed with the ease of use that you expect. So you match every customer interaction to revenue, use AI to test and optimize, and create more personal personalized experiences. Plus, you can integrate HubSpot with hundreds of other tools and apps. So stop managing your outdated and overly complex software and start creating remarkable customer experiences. Learn more about the new features in Marketing Hub Enterprise at hubspot.com slash Wondery. That's hubspot.com slash Wondery. 
Your family is part Greek, part English. You were brought up in London, though, and under the influence of all of this. Tell me a bit more just sort of uh, coexisting um, within these two different cultures. Yeah, so, so I mean, I grew up in London, uh, but my family is Greek. And, but, you know, if someone would say to me, Leon, I probably shouldn't admit this, but I'm going to say it anyway. If someone was to say to me, do you feel more Greek or more English? I mean, look, you know, I spent, and I hope my dad's not listening to this, but I spent, you know, a good chunk of my life in England. So I would say I I feel more English, but, you know, it's, I also feel Greek. So I kind of, it's kind of in the middle. Yeah. I'm like Gringlish. <laughs> what parts of you feel English or what, what elements do you feel like are parts of yourself do you feel like are distinctly English and what parts of you do you see sort of like living like, Oh, this is the Greek side of me coming yeah. out. So distinctly English is my fanaticism around football. So I support Liverpool and literally uh, they mean a lot to me. And if anyone is listening and they're English, they get it. And the Greek part of me, I don't know, maybe my adventurous side, maybe my, you know, Greek Greeks are very family orientated and on some level I am as well. Um, so I would say, I would say that. Yeah. And so as a kid growing up in that household, what are you into? What captures your interest? Other, other than football. Other, other than football. <laughs> if there's anything in the room you know for what? anything Really, else. as a kid, there was nothing except football. That was it. I mean, you know, I, I was literally, I played football, I watched football, I read about football. Kids used to come up to me because I was like an encyclopedia. Because yeah. all I did was read about football. So they'd say, like, who won the FA Cup in 1988? And I would tell them. And now I can't remember who won the FA Cup in 1988. So you were the stats guy, like obsessed exactly. with knowing every player, every exactly. number, exactly. all the history. Exactly. Who did exactly. Work, exactly. Where. Um, were you a player also? Yeah, I was. Um, I played for my school and my college. And I thought I was pretty good. But uh, um, I know I, I, I always wanted to be a soccer player. Mm. That was my dream, but it didn't happen. So mm. that was the end of that one. We, we had uh, a couple of years back, we had um, Sir Ken Robinson in here who actually grew up in Liverpool. And, okay. uh, but at the age of uh, three or four, was one of the final people who got polio literally like a month before the vaccine came out mm. and ended up in our lung. He was... He recounted the story of how in, in his family, he was the one who was sort of like a very young age known as like the football prodigy. Mm. And then everything changed in this one moment. But he said his entire family was just massively obsessed. And I think his brothers actually ended up playing pro as well. Oh, really? Yeah. Um, so you end up in college. You're still obsessed with all this. And what did you actually study in college or in university? Business management. Yeah. But literally I, I went to college and I tried, I tried to like study as many non-business classes as I could, <laughs> but I was studying business management. What was that about? Well, I didn't want to be in business. I mean, I didn't want to sit behind a desk. Even then I knew, but I didn't have the courage or the strength or the foresight or whatever to, or the emotional intelligence to realize that I was going down the wrong road, the wrong road for me, you know, not for others. Yeah. So the business classes were something where it's like, I'm going to do what I think my family wants me exactly, to do. Or... Exactly. That's exactly what it was. Yeah. Um, I think so many people feel yeah, that too. Absolutely. It's like life by other people's expectations. Mm. Um, so you end up getting your degree in business then? Yep. Then I start working as a broker in London right. and I spend a couple of years there. Um, and what were you actually doing? What was your, do you know, primarily it was actually a ship broker, ship. but people don't really know what that is. So I just say a broker. I was kind of like, you know, 
ships buying and selling commodities and putting them on ships and getting the ship from A to B. And that's that's the majority of what I did. But I did do some stockbroking, but primarily that. Mm. And that was the family business? Yeah. So this was also for you. It's not just, I'm sitting at a desk, I'm earning my living. But was there an assumption built into that? Like, this is just part of my destiny? Absolutely. And where I mean, would that lead? Where, had, you, had you have stayed, where would that have, like, what was the expectation that would lead to? I mean, look, the reality is that the way I saw it, I would have to sit behind this desk for 50 years, make as much money as I could, have a family, um, go to church, and, and just be a good English Greek boy. And that was like hell. So I just, I just I couldn't fathom that that was going to be my life. I really couldn't, but I didn't have the courage to break free. So I just sat behind that desk and... You know, on the outside, I had everything you could ever want. But on the inside, I had nothing. And I didn't want that. Mm. So then were you working with your dad at the same time? Then yes. Also? So then it's not just you doing this thing because you know, like he expects you to do the family, but it's actually you're there day to day together also. Yeah, <laughs> it's absolutely. Like there's nowhere to hide, basically. No, there was not. Did your dad have any sense at all that there was something else brewing inside of you? Do you know, I don't think he did. I don't think he did. I don't think anyone did. I mean, you know, sometimes we, we wear a mask and the mask tells the world, oh, everything's okay. But the truth is that we're not okay. And that's what happened to me. I was wearing this mask that told everyone I was fine. They had no idea that I was crumbling inside. Mm. How is that actually showing up in you sort of emotionally or physically? Depression, overeating, drinking too much, just doing all the things that as humans we do in order not to feel. So what happens? How does that stop? Well, it stopped. The beginning of the stop, let's say, was I watched the movie The Motorcycle Diaries, which is a romanticized version of Che Guevara traveling around South America relying on kindness. And there was something about that movie. And in the beginning of that movie, he says to his dad, his dad wants him to be a doctor, to stay in Buenos Aires and be a doctor. And Che says to him, no, I'm sorry, I'm leaving. And he gets on a motorbike and goes on an amazing adventure and I was like oh my goodness there's another way to live literally so after watching that movie a few months later I quit my job and started to travel the world relying on kindness so basically I took what he did and I think you know sometimes people say to me how on earth did you do that how on earth did you leave your job what the hell was going through your mind and the answer is really pain is what propelled me Pain is what pushed me to do this because I was in so much emotional pain that I felt like I had no choice but to do something different. And that's what I did. I don't think I was consciously thinking that it would end up here, like, you know, with shows and books and all this kind of stuff. But I knew that I didn't want to sit behind that desk. I knew I am not sitting behind this desk. I don't care what happens. It's not happening anymore. How long was it between when you sit down and watch this thing and something starts to flicker inside and you actually work your last day at that job? The moment I left the movie, I finished watching the movie, it was instant. I was like, this you has, knew. I knew, yeah. this is, I can never live like this again. And I would say, I can't remember exactly, but I would say a couple of months from the moment I watched that to the moment where it, it, it all came to an end. Um, what's going on in your mind at that point? And are you also making preparations that are like behind the yeah, scenes? Yeah, I was making preparations behind the scenes. 
Um, and I was just, you know, I just had to find a way to, to free myself from, from this is, I don't want to use this word, but from the prison that I found myself in, you know, again, I had everything on the outside, but I was in an emotional prison. And there were many of us like that, that get stuck in this emotional prison. I just, it was hell. You know, we seem to, in our society, we look at people on the outside who have everything and we're like, how on earth could, could you be upset? How on earth could you be sad? How on earth could you be depressed? How on earth could you feel alone? But the reality is money doesn't hide or fix the internal brokenness of a human being. Doesn't mean that it doesn't help to live a better life. It does. But um, it was just, it wasn't good. And uh, it kind of all came for, as a kid because I was bullied really quite profoundly and that was when it started to feel alone and for years and years and years I felt alone and it kind of followed me in my adulthood and um I think a lot of people have that shared experience also mm. you know that experience both when they're younger and it becomes a part of you but it doesn't become a part of you that's sort of external but you're wearing it on the inside for mm. years until in some way shape or form like it needs to be processed through and out. Mm. And that takes, for a lot of people, that takes the form of pain and suffering and illness. For you, it sounds like it was causing a lot of pain or it was underneath a lot of what you were feeling, but you externalize it. You sort of brought it to the surface and used it almost as, as energy to create outer change. When you show up and you know that you need to have the conversation with your dad, what does that moment look like? Well, look, I, I just, you know, I just told him that I couldn't do it anymore and that I was leaving. And he wasn't entirely sure that I was, that I was well in the head. He's like, are you okay? Like what? He couldn't get it. He didn't understand it. He was like, look, this is, he didn't say this, but I felt it. This is your path. You know, this is what, this is what we do. And uh, he just didn't, he just didn't get it, which is fine. You know, I don't, I didn't, then I expected him to get it. Now I understand clearly that he was never going to get it. I mean, he gets it now, but he was never going to get it in that, in those moments because just different generations. Yeah. Different values. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And I, I wonder also when that happens, especially um, when you have a parent that is more either um, war era or depression era where the idea of pursuing a livelihood or a life that was built primarily around meaning and purpose, you know, that was secondary because you were trying to keep the family alive and put it, like nothing else mattered. You were brought up in a way mm -hmm. where there was, you know, it was all about keeping the family safe, putting food on the table and a roof over the head. And then when the next generation comes along and says, but I want something different. I need the existential part of it to be satisfied mm -hmm. too. I've, I've had so many conversations with people who have sort of like had that generational conversation and it's always really hard because you're just, you spend so much time in these two different worlds. And, and it's interesting with your dad too. I wonder how much of that was about um, him having a certain expectation about the legacy being continued. Hmm. It was probably a bit of, a bit of everything. And he thought that my future and my happiness would be secured if I stayed in the business. I knew that that would be the death of me, um, but I couldn't clearly, clearly kind of convey that to him in those moments. Um, and sometimes you have to do something 
even when everyone else feels it's wrong. And you have to have the strength of character and the strength of belief in yourself that what you're doing is right. And you just keep on going and you don't let anyone else uh, stop you because you know yourself better than they do. Yeah, I think that's a really hard thing to do. Had you shared with uh, any any close friends what was going on with you before this moment? Do you know what? I didn't really have any close friends to be uh -huh. able to share it with. I just, it was a totally different life that I lived back then where there was no connection. There was no, there was no hope. Again, on the outside, I had everything. Yeah. I'm just talking about the internal lack of hope. And it was just, it was hell. My own private hell. Yeah. So you make that call, you have the conversation, um, the door closes behind you and, and the new door opens into this new adventure, new life. In your mind, you have, okay, so this is Leon's version of the Motorcycle Diaries. What are the first steps towards that? This well, is not like you've been training for this your whole life. Yeah, this is no. like brand spanking yeah. there. So basically the first thing I did was I actually ended up hitchhiking from New York, Times Square to the Hollywood sign. And I had no money. I had like $5. And uh, I brought a few friends along. And we ended up like connecting with all these unbelievable people. And I had learned through the news, through business that I'd been doing, that people were mean, that people were not kind, that we lived in this terrible world. And I started meeting people that were like angels, just normal humans on the street. And I was just totally in shock. It just opened me up to the nth degree and it made me realize really that there was another way to be and that there were people out there living with their hearts. And it was literally like you'd put me on an alien planet and it was so refreshing that I never wanted to stop living from that place. Of course, you know, and I'm not perfect, no one's perfect, and there were bad days and there were good days, and there were many bad days even after I left my, my job. But that was like a witness to a new way of living that was very profound. Once you started into that journey, what was the first interaction that you can recall that really opened your eyes, opened your heart to, wow, this is like, the people can be different, things can be different, something just happened to me that... I never saw it coming and, and I will never be the same. Looking back at it, there was a, uh, I was in Times Square, so literally in the first day, and no one would help me. So I'd spent like hours trying to get people to, to talk to me and they wouldn't. And for, for those who haven't been to Times Square in New York, like if you're local, you don't talk to anybody. Exactly. You, go, you walk fast with your head down. Exactly. It's like anyone who tries to stop you for any reason, you just pretend they don't exist. It's sort of like the rule of Times Square for locals. Exactly. I didn't realize that, but yeah. I learned the hard way. And it was a couple of hours and I was thinking to myself, well, what am I doing? You know, I have ended up in the middle of Times Square with basically no money, having to get to the Hollywood sign. Everyone who told me that what I was about to do is right. I am insane. I have to go home. Clearly, I wasn't going to go home because I had set my mind on this. So I ended up meeting this guy who started talking to me. And it turns out that he was a pimp. And we started talking and I had no idea who he was, but this guy was so kind and so loving. And he said to me, um, he actually took me to New Jersey. Now he took me on the path and I didn't realize that the path was free anyway. And it was back then. But, you know, he took me to the path and he said, this is, you know, I, I wanted to get you out of New York. Here you are in New, in New Jersey. And you know, it was amazing because 
in the old days, I would have looked at him. Well, I didn't know what he what he what he did for a job, but I would have probably looked at him and thought, I don't want to talk to this guy. But it was it was so different. He was a very kind-hearted human being, and I was like, well, if he can be like that, then I can be like that. And if he can be like that, I wonder who else is like him or even better on my journeys. So that was kind of an opening moment that really changed things. Mm. I mean, it's interesting too that you, you offered that example. It's because it also, it speaks to me about um, how complex we are as, as human beings mm. that in probably all of us, there are sides that can be one way in one context and a profoundly different way mm. in another context. I've had friends who are criminal lawyers and they're representing some really dark people who've done terrible things. And yet they treat them like these people who are, you know, like felons, violent, would treat their their lawyer um, or their representative in the most nurturing, loving way. It really is fascinating how I think, how complicated we are. <laughs> we are certainly complicated and no one is perfect. And we have a, like a trait in our, in us. Maybe it's, it's, it's a human trait that we like building people up and then pulling them down. Mm. And there isn't a single human being that you can't pull down if you want to. Um, instead of trying to pull people down, let's try and lift them up. Yeah. What was the idea behind doing this with almost nothing in your pocket? Do you know what? As I look back at it, I realize what it was because I grew up with whatever I wanted materialistically within reason, but no love. I didn't feel it. Yeah, I, I felt alone. So I did these journeys where I flipped it and I had no money and all I could do was rely on people's love and people's heart. And... I didn't consciously do that when I started these journeys. But as I look back, it's it's just so interesting how how I did it. Had money, then took away my money. Had no had no connection and made myself live on connection. Yeah. It's almost like your subconscious mind knew what you needed. Exactly. That's exactly what it did. So fascinating. So one of the things that I've learned is that no matter who you are, life sometimes gets hard. And that can lead to feelings of overwhelm, anxiety, depression, any number of other emotions that can be really hard to process on our own. BetterHelp online counseling can really help. BetterHelp offers licensed professional counselors who are specialized in everything from depression, stress and anxiety to relationship issues, sleep challenges, LGBTQ matters and more. You can connect with a professional counselor in a safe and private online environment. Anything you share is confidential and you get help at your own time and at your own pace. Schedule secure video or phone sessions plus chat and text with your therapist. And this is pretty cool. If your counselor doesn't feel like a right fit, no worries. Just request a new one anytime with no additional charge. They've got 3,000 licensed U.S. therapists in all 50 states. And best of all, it's a truly affordable option. And as a Good Life Project listener, you'll get 10% off your first month by going to betterhelp.com slash goodlife. So why not get started today? Go to betterhelp.com slash goodlife. Don't put off feeling better. Simply fill out a questionnaire and get matched with a counselor you'll love. Betterhelp.com slash goodlife. Or just click the link in the show notes. 
So can we talk about third love bras? I never thought I would be sitting here telling you how happy third love makes me. And the reason is third love bras make my wife, Stephanie, really happy. And anything that makes her feel amazing is something that I pretty much love too. I have had quite the education about bras lately and learned that they are a huge pain point for so many women and fit and feel are kind of at the heart of the problem. And that is where third love totally changes the game. They have been working with input from more than 12 million women who've taken their fit finder quiz and they're kind of on a mission to redesign not just bras but the entire experience of buying one to make it an absolute pleasure. No stores to travel to, uncomfortable fitting rooms, off-the-shelf fittings never quite do the job. You just you take a minute to complete their fit finder quiz online. They recommend exactly what you need and send it to you and with more than 70 sizes including half cups with really lush fabrics they actually have a 100% fit guarantee. You can wear it for 60 days, wash it, put it to the test and if you don't love it return it and third love will wash it and then donate it to a woman in need how awesome is that third love knows there is a perfect bra for everyone so right now as a good life project listener you get 15% off your first order go to thirdlove.com/goodlife now to find your perfect fitting bra and get 15% off your first purchase that's thirdlove.com/goodlife for 15% off today or just click the link in the show notes You said you started this with a couple of friends. Yeah. Were, were they with you the whole so, time? So basically what happened was the first adventure, I had a guy who worked in TV and I called him up and I said, look, I want to do this show. And he's like, well, you know, first of all, that's insane. You're never going to make it to the Hollywood sign. And secondly, no one's ever going to buy this show. And I was like, well, I don't care. I want to do it. He was like, all right. So, you know, he was like in the, in the TV world. We bought a few cameras and we just went across America and I did, you know, the connecting and he did the filming. So the whole time you're recording this yes. whole thing. As you start to move across the country, did you notice also differences at all? I'm curious, um, sort of like regional differences in how people were open or closed down or abundant or scarcity oriented or super generous or not? Definitely. So in the bigger cities, people are less, are more standoffish in the, but you know, as long, you can get through the shell but it's harder. Uh, and in the smaller towns, people just were so friendly and so loving. Look, my English accent helped. The moment you start speaking English, they're like, oh my God, we love the queen or whatever it is. So I would say in the smaller places and Midwest was beautiful. Um, and then when you got to the bigger cities, people were walking fast. Like you said about Times Square, they were just like walking. They didn't want to have anything to do with you. Yeah. And then LA, everyone lives in their cars. Exactly. <laughs> so exactly. World. They do. Uh, what time of year was this? End of summer. All right. So the weather was was good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It wasn't too bad. And what year was that? That was 2005. Okay. And the world has changed a lot since then. Yes, it has. <laughs> so you end up, how long did it take actually to get to uh, LA? You know what? It only took a month. Because Is that I was, what you thought? I thought it would take a bit longer. Yeah. But you see, there was a guy in, in Galesburg, Illinois, who bought me a train ticket. I couldn't accept money. You couldn't give me money, only kindness. And he bought me a train ticket to Denver, which is like 18 hours. So you had these moments where people would drive you for like 12 hours and you would, you know, a lot of distance would be covered. Hmm. That's amazing. So you end up a month later in LA, walk up to the Hollywood sign. I did. I what? couldn't touch it because it's illegal. <laughs> I didn't want to be arrested. Oh, I didn't know that. <laughs> but I, I went, I was close to it. Yeah, it's like an inch away. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> um, as you're walking up to it, what's going through your mind? 
was like, it was a sense of achievement. It was a sense of wonder. It was a sense of, wow, here I have an opportunity to really live a life that I've always wanted to live. And it was also a letdown in a way because I knew that that was it. Like, what am I going to do now? Like I, was, I was at the Hollywood sign. Okay, great. Now what? Like, it was, it was weird. I didn't, didn't have any plans. My plans were to get to the Hollywood sign. There were no after plans. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting. You, you hear about Olympic athletes who go to the Olympics, actually medal, and mm. fall into deep depressions because the mm. thing that they've been striving for and mm. working and devoting all their energy to for so long it, it, they've gotten everything they wanted and mm -hmm. yet they wake up the next morning and that soul driver of purpose is mm -hmm. gone. Mm -hmm. And and along with it, sort of almost a part of their identity. Did you experience any of that after immediately after? I definitely experienced dep some depression, not major anymore, but some depression after the journeys. Yeah. Because you have this purpose, you have this sense of destiny, let's say. You're going to get there, you're not going to give up, you're going to keep going, you're connecting with people, and then you finish. And then what? Like, it's also easy to burn out because you keep on doing these adventures. You keep on connecting with people. You keep on going and, and meeting all these and, and having all these amazing adventures. And then you come home and it's like, well, well, now what? It's like the adrenaline stops and you wake up in the morning with no real sense of purpose. That used to affect me a lot, but not, not really so much anymore, I'd say. Mm. So where do you go from there? I mean, how do you go from that place to saying, okay, this was an incredible month, but it needs to become something bigger and something enduring. You lay spiritual roots as far into the earth as you can reach. Meaning that one of the things that I've learned is that whatever success you have on the outside, if you have no grounding, if you have no spiritual practice, if you have no sense of belonging, in your community, it doesn't matter how successful you are because you'll wake up with a hole in your heart. So I would say, find a practice, find a way to, to kind of spiritually nourish yourself beyond the world of money, beyond the world of fame, beyond the world of success. Mm. What did that look like for you? A lot of walking through pain, a lot of therapy. <laughs> a lot of meditation, a lot of retreats, a lot of solo travel, a lot of silent meditation, a lot of tears, a lot of many things to break free from the way that society tells us we have to be. So during that process, what assumptions, like what sort of core level assumptions and beliefs shifted in you? Well, the first and most profound thing that shifted for me was that how do I say this? There is a river of love flowing through us all. And the moment you find it, and the moment you take a swim in that river, everything changes. I don't know if that's explained it well, but there's a vibration of, of love. There's a vibration of beingness that we've lost. We're not connected to it. And the Native Americans, I think, were connected to it. And that was their superpower. And, you know, maybe our superpower in the society we live in is building buildings, sending rockets to the moon and people to the moon. But we've forgotten how to be human. And I would urge people to try and find their humanity once again 
by taking a jump in that river and swimming. Mm-hmm. As you awaken to that, building on the journey that you had just taken, and then you got to look forward and you're like, okay, so amazing experience, something shifting profoundly within me, a new realization to the fact that there is this river of love that exists within me and between us, if we allow it mm-hmm. to flow freely. Then you got to look forward and say, okay, and what am I going to do with all of this? Well, it's interesting because it, you know, I finished that journey in 2005. And from 2005 until 2013, I had no idea there was a river. If you told me there was one, I wouldn't have believed you. If you'd shown it to me, I wouldn't have taken a swim. My point being is I was in Hollywood. I was living the Hollywood life. I was doing all the wrong things. Um, and I thought that was my salvation, that, that I would find my path by the external success. And I was wrong. What were you actually doing? What types of things? <laughs> well, I don't want to go into too much detail, but I just wasn't living a very peaceful existence. And, you know, you can imagine I had a house in the hills and things, you know, got interesting at times. And I remember I was basically doing everything I was doing in London, you know, in the sense that I was thinking to myself, success was the answer. You know, throwing big parties was the answer. Just connecting with all the wrong people was the answer. Um, and that went on for seven, seven years, seven, eight years, um, until 2013 when I just, I couldn't do it anymore. I was running a production company in LA, uh, and I just, it just, again, I had no spiritual roots. The, the, you know, my answer about the spiritual roots happened later. It happened after the kindness diaries. Um, those seven, eight years were, I wouldn't give them up. I'm happy I did them, but I don't want to do them again. Yeah, and it was it was it was an interesting journey. Yeah, I mean, what's interesting also is that you have this month long experience. Mm. It closes the door on this old thing. It opens you to the idea that kindness can exist, mm. and then you land in LA, mm. and then something kind of closes the door again for mm. the next seven years. Just interesting. The door wasn't fully closed, okay, because I did keep on kind of doing the kindness. Uh, adventures. I, I wrote a few books. I I was connecting with people, but m- the bigger part of Leon, let's say, was was not open. Was not talking about like you know connecting with the heart. He wasn't living from that place, but it was slowly, slowly getting bigger uh, until 2013 when it was just too much, and I and I quit my job again. I resigned from my production company. And uh, started traveling the world again. And this time it was like, that's it. This is over. I'm never going back to that job. And I never did. Um, And everything kind of changed. So sometimes when I give my speeches in front of schools or businesses or whatever, I tell them that life isn't always an upward angle, let's say. Sometimes you have to go down to go up. It's a jagged line. Exactly. (laughs) It always is. You know, you kind of want it to be like a thing going up, but it doesn't happen that way. No. I mean, the hero's journey is not, you know, mm. this smooth, easy thing. Mm. There will be, you've got your tests and your trials mm. And, mm. and the things that beat you back and make you show you really understand and you mm. really want it. Was there something that happened that then, like, was this final straw where, like, seven years into the production company, you're like, okay, the, the pressure's been building that, you know, I'm, I'm awakening to these things. I'm externally creating things that say, this is what I believe, but there's something inside. And, and was it... Was it, again, just this gradual awakening that led to you saying, okay, boom, 
um, blowing this up and something profoundly different and new has to start? Or was there something that actually happened? I think it was gradual, but they were, again, like the Motorcycle Diaries, there was one moment that kind of shifted everything. And I was walking on Hollywood Boulevard and I saw this homeless guy with a sign that said, kindness is the best medicine. And I was like, wow, kindness is the best medicine. It was so profoundly simple, but true. Um, gave him a little bit of money, chatted with him for a little bit. And it was at that moment that kind of everything made sense. And I ended up deciding to buy a vintage yellow motorcycle with a sidecar. And I was going to drive it from Los Angeles all the way around the world back to Los Angeles with nothing. This time, no money. And I would rely on kindness. Uh, but this time, I would also give something back. So if you were kind to me, there was a chance that I would give you a life-changing gift. Because kindness really is not just a one-way street. It's a two-way street. It's about giving and receiving. So that was the moment. But it had been building. You know, it had been building for, for years. Mm. You know, I'd, I'd throw these parties. I never, I never forget this story. Dennis Rodman, I, I read it somewhere. He said that he, he had this massive house wherever he, wherever he was living. And he would throw these parties with three, 400 people. And he would be in his bedroom just with the door locked reading. And I remember reading that and I thought to myself, wow, that is exactly what I used to do. I would throw these parties and I would end up in my room by myself reading. I was surrounded by people, but I was profoundly alone still because I still hadn't realized that you had to put down your spiritual roots you know, so I thought, oh, if I throw a party with 200 people, I'll be, I'll, you know, they'll like me and everything will be great. But it didn't work that way because there was no connection. It didn't feel connected. Yeah. It's a, it's amazing how um, being alone and being lonely are completely different mm. things. And we, we conflate them so often. Mm. And we just think, well, if we're not alone, if we're surrounded by all these people, how could we possibly be lonely? Mm. And yet for so many people, it doesn't solve the loneliness problem. In fact, very often it makes it worse mm -hmm. if there are people that you feel disconnected with because then you start to shame yourself for like, how can I, like, what's wrong with me that I would still feel alone? It's almost like, how dare I? Mm -hmm. um, when I'm surrounded with so many beautiful and amazing and intelligent mm -hmm. people, mm -hmm. like what's wrong with me? Well, I think the way to feel less alone is simply with all your might to open your heart and I'm not suggesting you immediately open your heart. Sometimes it's not so simple. But to every day, try to connect with another human being. Try to be a little bit more vulnerable. Uh, and as the days go on, it becomes easier and it becomes easier. And then you're living on a different plane. You're living like on the river of love plane. <laughs> you ever imagine as a, like a ship broker, you saying living on the river of love plane? <laughs> Do you know what? No, I mean, no, seriously. It's just, you, do you know what? You sometimes forget where you came from. Yeah. You know, I sometimes forget, like I was, I was actually in London a couple of days ago and I was walking the streets and this was, you know, when I was in my worst place and some of the memories that were coming back to me of how I used to be in London, they came back to me and I was like, thank God I'm not doing that anymore. Thank God I'm not experiencing this. I remember I was walking down a, a main street, Park Lane in London many, many years ago. And I was so depressed and I was so alone. And I thought to myself, I'm just going to jump in front of a bus. Clearly I didn't do it, thankfully. But when you're at that point of total brokenness, it's not fun. 
And sometimes people saved me simply by being kind. And I think that's why I do what I do. Because I was saved by people's kindness. I was saved by people's, you know, making me feel like I mattered. Just simple things. Witnessing my pain. Because sometimes we don't witness other people's pain. Because our pain is so grand and so destructive that we it's impossible to see anyone else's pain. Yeah, we become, I think, consumed. Yeah. Without judgment. I mean, we're all living in our own special sure. things and we're Absolutely. all dealing and grappling with whatever it is that's yeah. personal to us. Yeah. So you reach this point where you buy a motorcycle with a sidecar and decide this new adventure is needs to start where you're going to travel literally 24,000 miles around the world in this thing, this time starting out with no money mm. and giving back along the way too when you feel in some way compelled to do that. What's the intention with this going into it? And, and what, was this sort of like your, did you call, were you calling this the Kindness Diaries when you started it? Was this designed also to create a series as you're going along? It, it was designed to create a series, but we had no one who wanted to buy it. Mm. So I just said, let's do it. And people were like, well, who's going to buy it? I was like, I have no idea, but we're doing it anyway. All right. So we did it. Um, and I think the intention, to be honest, in that moment, I was I was at a low. And my intention was like like I did with, with, the, sh with the Amazing Adventures show I did. It was kind of to free myself and to become free. And then free by connecting again. And then when I finished it, I realized, and I think it was during that journey that I realized something happened on that journey. I realized that if I just spent my life trying to free myself, that that wasn't a life well lived. And that now after the journey, I had kind of freed myself, still not, not perfect, but I kind of freed myself. And now it became about sharing it with as many people as possible to try in some way and free them. Because I'd read books that had freed me, I'd watched shows that had freed me, I'd listened to speakers that had freed me, helped along the way. So I wanted to do that and free others in, through entertainment, not through preaching. So you'd watch a show about a guy on a yellow motorcycle and you'd, you'd think you're just watching a show about a guy on a yellow motorcycle, but really you're having your heart opened and you're having a mirror placed in front of you. And that mirror is showing you your own kindness, your own heart, your own magnificence. A wise man once said to me, what you see in others is in you. Because I would always say, oh, I love Martin Luther King, or I love Winston Churchill, or I love Gandhi. And he said that to me, what you see in them is clearly in you. So that's what I want the Kindness Diaries to do to like open up people's hearts to be like, okay, I'm not this bad human being, or there are good human beings out there. Mm. So is it just me or does it feel like time keeps moving faster and faster? One thing I've realized is that for really important decisions like finding the right insurance, I actually want the best solutions that give me the greatest peace of mind in the least amount of time. And that is where Policy Genius can really help. Policy Genius is the easy way to buy life insurance online in just two minutes. You can compare quotes from the top insurers and find your best price. And then once you apply, the Policy Genius team handles all the paperwork and red tape. No commissions, no hidden fees 
just more time saved for you. And Policy Genius doesn't just make life insurance easy. They also make it easy to find the right home insurance, auto insurance, or disability insurance. They're kind of your one-stop shop for financial protection. So if you need life insurance, but you're short on time, head to policygenius.com and compare quotes. Policy Genius is easy, it saves you money, and not to belabor the point, it's fast. Policy Genius, spending less time comparing life insurance and more time doing literally anything else. And by the way, this eventually does become a series which is now viewable on Netflix and we'll certainly, we'll, um, we'll link to that in the show notes as well. As you're filming this, you started in LA again, right? From what I remember. Yes, we started in LA. And the first, the first part of the journey is back across the United States. Yes. To the East Coast, which is kind of interesting, right? So it's like you're sort of like tracking back from like that yeah. place you started the, the earlier journey from. I remember watching a couple days into it, you had met so many different people already. People have given you food, people have given you gas for the motorcycle, people have given you shelter. And there was a moment, I, I don't remember where you were in the country, but you approached a man and you asked him if you could go home with him, if you could sleep with him. And, and he looked at you and there was a pause and you could see in his face, he was struggling. And he said, well, I'm homeless. Tell me more about that moment, that experience. That was an experience that changed me. Um, so I'd go up to people in the streets and I would say to them, can I stay in your house tonight? And they would mostly say no, but that's fine. Um, some would say yes, clearly, otherwise I wouldn't have been able to do it. And I asked this guy, say, can I stay in your house tonight? And he goes, look, I'm really sorry, but I'm homeless. So I felt all ashamed. I was about to walk off. And he turns around and he says, do you know what? If you want, you can stay with me tonight. I'll feed you, I'll protect you, and I'll give you some clothes. And I was not expecting that. And I thought to myself, Leon, there is no way that you're, I'm going to let you sleep on the streets of Pittsburgh tonight. It's just not going to happen. But there was a little part of me that says, Leon, tonight you are sleeping on the streets of Pittsburgh. So I listened to that voice, ended up going with him to his camp, um, and he did everything he said he would do. He fed me, he protected me, and he gave me some clothes. And uh, he taught me, his name was Tony. I am still in touch with him years later. Uh, he's living in Florida now. And uh, he taught me that true wealth is not in our wallets, but it's in our hearts. And he taught me something else too. He said, he taught me that kindness is free. And if a homeless man with nothing can be kind, then I have no excuse. If a homeless man with nothing can be kind, then you have no excuse. So it was really life-changing, really deeply. Mm. I remember um, as you were leaving him, he came out and he gave you some of his clothes mm. to take with you. Mm. You did indeed. Good old Tony. So you move on from there and continue and start this around the world adventure, accepting kindness from other people. And at the same point, giving. You leave the United States fairly quickly and that takes you into a whole universe of other countries of developed and developing worlds. Along the way, what were the, the moments or stories or interactions that shocked you, surprised you, really stood out in a powerful way to you? I'm sure there were so many. Yeah, there I mean, there, there really were a lot. I, I remember meeting this 
these musicians, these uh, buskers in Aix-en-Provence in France, and they were just playing their music, which was beautiful. And then they went up and they asked for some money and people gave them money. And uh, they were from Benin. And I ended up talking to them and telling them what I was doing and they offered to put me up for the night. And they had nothing, really, but they had everything. And again, it was a lesson. Because prior to, actually just after Aix-en-Provence, I went to Saint-Tropez, which is filled with people with money. And, you know, I decided to like try and ask people if I could stay on their yachts. Didn't work, you know, but the street busker from Africa let me stay with them. So it's kind of interesting sometimes how that works. I think when you, when people with, with money sometimes have a standoffish attitude, they think you're trying to get something from them. What do you, what do you want from me? But those without, they're used to people helping them. They're used to helping others. And that was a really interesting difference I found in, in, in society, let's say. Yeah. I mean, maybe it, part of it also is that they understand on a lived embodied level what it's like to exist with very little and how powerful the simple act of kindness mm. um, can be. Maybe they've experienced it more often and more readily in their mm. own lives. I think the greatest thing that you can give another human being is to actually see them. Mm. And uh, when you see someone, you hear them, you show them that they matter. And um, the most destructive thing you can do for another human being is not to see them. That leads to pain, leads to anger, leads to hate, leads to the dark side, as Yoda would say. Yeah. I wonder if the if part of that equation is also to allow yourself to be seen mm. for who you are. Yeah. That's, that's, that's the that's tricky scary. part. Huh. But you see, that's it. Because yeah. to allow yourself to be seen is to allow yourself to be vulnerable. Yeah. And to allow yourself to be vulnerable means that you could be squashed by another human being. And that's why most people hide behind walls and hide behind masks because they don't want to be vulnerable because it's risky. Mm. As you headed through this journey into more developing worlds, how did the experience change? It was harder to find people that were willing to let down their barriers, to let down their walls, to take off their masks. But you can do it. You can make anyone take down their mask. The way to do it is simply to connect with them about something that they like. Like, for example, it's easy for me to connect to someone in England who likes football. Done. You know, um, if you're, wherever you are in the world, sometimes people say to me, how on earth do you connect with people like that? And I tell them, find something that the other person likes and the other person is passionate about and talk to them about it and find something that you both have in common. There's always something you have in common. Oh, I don't have anything in common. Okay. Does the other person have a kid? Yes. Do you have a kid? Yes. Well, there you go. You have something in common. Talk about being a parent. Mm. As a journey continues, eventually you go full circle and come back. And again, this incredible, intense, emotional, round the world, eye-opening, heart-opening journey happens. And yet once again, you're back. Mm. How do you handle that? I got ill physically for months. I remember coming home and the adrenaline wore off again. And uh, I ended up breaking up with my girlfriend. <laughs> it, it wasn't good, <laughs> you know, it wasn't good. 
because sometimes uh, people say to me sometimes they're like Leon you're always running and they were right I was and my journeys were me running away to a certain degree I mean I ran towards the light but I had to come home yeah and coming home was where the challenges were it's kind of easier when you're on the road you're you know you're traveling you're connecting you're in somewhere different every day but yeah it was very difficult depressed feeling alone no sense again not no sense of purpose because i had a purpose at that stage but just no spiritual roots no groundedness no ability to truly share in daily life yes you can put a camera in front of me and i can share but can you do that in your daily life can you connect with people properly without a camera in front of you and that after I came back from the kind stories, one was a challenge. So where do you go from there? How do you get back to a place where things are okay? A lot of therapy, a lot of meditation. <laughs> Tommy, <laughs> repeating itself here. <laughs> no, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, I'm not, I tell people when I, you know, I tell people because they send me messages all the time. How are you always so happy? And I say, look, I'm not always so happy. Trust me. You know, I'm like you. I have good days and I have very bad days. I just make an effort to keep on going. I made it make, you know, like I said, I read a lot of books. I had people that helped me. I had wise people that guided me. And I sat in front of a therapist for probably is a thousand hours. Many people, they kind of like committed to their jobs. They're committed to their families. But how many people are committed to themselves, are committed to finding their magic and finding their way through their pain. For whatever reason, I had that. And that's what freed me. I had that. I'll share my pain. I tell people, share your pain. For if you don't share your pain, it'll stay in you and it'll be like a cancer and it'll get worse and it'll get worse. Cry. Like sometimes you know, people cry and they're like, oh, I'm so sorry I'm crying. I'm like, don't be sorry. It's beautiful. Cry as much as you want. Let it out. So share your pain. That was one of the things that got me out of, out, of, out of it. But yes, there was, like I said, it's like a jagged line. It's not like a straight line. It's, bad things happen. This is that famous book. What is it? Good things happen to bad people? Well, no, bad things happen to good people. <laughs> and, and also it's like, you know, the process of awakening mm. is not an easy one. And, and very often what bubbles up is, both, you know, like the, the light and the dark, mm. you know, like the beauty and the struggle. Mm. Um, and, you know, I think sometimes we get a hit of the beauty and we start thinking, well, maybe there's a way to just have that. And we chase mm. that and only that. The struggle is always there until you figure out a way to move through it. Do you know what I've, I've, I've realized? <laughs> and I'm not sure that I would have kept going had I realized this, but I've realized that let's say you have a connection with the divine and you're like so high on life. Unfortunately, there is further to fall, you know? So I've had these moments lately where I'm like connected to the divine and I'm like, oh my God, I've made it. And then three hours later, I'm like swimming in like a sea of really bad stuff. And there's, it's just, but that's the, that's, that's the price you pay, you know? That's the price you pay for never giving up, keep on going, laying spiritual roots. There is good and there is bad. There is terrible and there is fantastic. And instead of like living in like the, like this nether world of like 
being disconnected so you don't suffer and you don't enjoy. You have to deal with, with both of them. Mm. And that's not fun. It's fun when you're high on life, but it's not fun when you're not. <laughs> yeah. And I think it's related to how we define a successful life in no small part, mm. which is like so much of it is about happiness rather than meaningfulness. Mm. And I feel like you know, when we use happiness as the ultimate gauge of a life well lived, we end up constantly beating ourselves up because nobody can be that all the time. And it's the polarities that let you understand when there's good stuff happening. It's like mm. there's I mean, great research on the fact that the, you know, the most fulfilling life is what scientists are, are now calling uh, an emo-diverse life, where you have the full sweep of emotional experiences, not just perpetually happy or perpetually this. We need contrast to know when we're in one place or the other. Yeah. I get it, but it's not fun. When no, and and like we don't necessarily need dark, dark, dark to, yeah. to, to realize the light. Um, so you start to emerge from this and to rebuild to a certain extent, and you're speaking and doing all sorts of other stuff around this and writing. Then at that point too, your uh, your most recent book, Go Be Kind, I thought is really interesting given this narrative because you spent so many years going out on these extreme around the world, like cross country adventures to find this place. And it almost feels like you've, you've written a book now, which, which is essentially, it's a month of things that any human being can do in the context of their own lives without having to go out on the road and make these massive um, sweeping gestures. It, it feels like, it almost feels like this was written for you to convince yourself that like, can I actually experience all of these things and feel these things that I, I have traveled the world to experience without running anywhere, but actually just being? Do you know, that's it's, it's really interesting that you just said that. Like, that you said that it's like written for you uh, to prove to yourself that you can do it in everyday life. Because I would do it when I was out on the road and I would come home and I would fall apart the beauty of kindness is that it's universal. So you can write it for a 10-year-old. You can write it for a 110-year-old. I have a very close friend who has a nine-year-old daughter, and they sent me a picture of them doing the book to get the journal together. That was so beautiful because that's what this is all about. It's about, A, connecting people. It's about remembering that we are kind, that it's part of who we are. And, uh, yeah, it's... It wasn't written for anyone in particular. It was written for all of us. Mm. I also like the fact that it was, it's not so much a book that you read, it's a journal that you do. It's really a journal about inspiring people to know that you don't need a yellow motorbike. You don't need a 50-year-old yellow beetle to go around the world. You just need to wake up in the morning and make a commitment to yourself to treat other people with a dignity and a respect and a grace that you would want to be treated and to know that you're not perfect and neither are they. And you don't have to wake up every morning, go out and be Gandhi because believe it or not, not even Gandhi was Gandhi. So yeah, that's, that's, I love that. That's another, yes, you should become my agent. <laughs> <laughs> we'll talk after this. Um, it's interesting because I think so as I'm a writer also, and so many writers I know, like we write to answer the problems that we have personally mm. or to answer the questions mm. that we have personally or to, to somehow 
almost anyone I know, especially that, that writes in the world of prescriptive or self-help or personal development or just living a better life, human potential. I think, you know, like we, you write because you hope that what you're putting out into the world is useful to other people. And at the same time, in some way, it's like you're scratching your own itch. It's like, it's, it's such a common experience mm. I've seen. I know for me it is. Mm. Yeah, and I guess, you know, a lot of people, they would say to me, I can't do this. I can't be kind. I have a job. I have to raise a family. I don't have enough money to go around the world with nothing. And I, I say to them, all you have to do is moment to moment, best endeavors, show up with love in your heart. That's all you have to do. You don't have to do anything else. Just do that and see what happens. Hmm. I can get on board with that. Feels like a good place for us to come full circle as well. So, Namely This Is Good Life Project, if I offer up the phrase to live a good life, what comes up? Follow your heart, live with kindness, and share your gifts with as many people as you can. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. And thanks also to our fantastic sponsors who help make this show possible. You can check them out in the links we have included in today's show notes. And while you're at it, if you've ever asked yourself, what should I do with my life? We have created a really cool online assessment that will help you discover the source code for the work that you're here to do. You can find it at sparkatype.com. That's S-P-A-R-K-E. Type.com, or just click the link in the show notes. And of course, if you haven't already done so, be sure to click on the subscribe button in your listening app so you never miss an episode. And then share, share the love. If there's something that you've heard in this episode that you would love to turn into a conversation, share it with people and have that conversation. Because when ideas become conversations that lead to action, that's when real change takes hold. See you next time.